bringing a cell or gene therapy to market is an art. Hear Veristat thought leaders as they draw on their specialized expertise to offer insight on timely, relevant clinical development topics. Hello, and welcome to the ART podcast, Advancing Revolutionary Therapies, a podcast presented by the Center of Excellence for Cell and Gene Therapies at Veristat. My name is Kevin Hennigan, Senior Regulatory Strategist with Veristat. Today, I will be presenting common pitfalls to avoid when planning your cell therapy study. This is the first in a series of podcasts discussing various topics pertaining to the development of cell and gene therapy programs. I have put together today's discussion with my colleague, Rachel Smith. Rachel will also be discussing a similar topic in the coming weeks on common pitfalls to avoid when planning your gene therapy study. There is some overlap across these topics, but I encourage you to listen to both. First, because there are also some unique elements to each product class, and second, because Rachel is an outstanding speaker and I think you'll learn a lot from her. The objectives of today's podcast are to discuss the definitions of cell therapy in the US and EU and to outline some of the most common hurdles we've identified as it pertains to designing a cell therapy program. So how is the cell therapy defined? In the U.S., cell therapies are defined as articles containing or consisting of human cells that are intended for implantation, transplantation, infusion, or transfer into a human recipient. The EMA uses a slightly different definition, defining a cell therapy as a product that contains or consists of cells or tissues that have been subject to substantial manipulation to alter their biological characteristics, physiological functions, or structural properties, and is intended to treat, prevent, or diagnose a disease. Now that we've defined the product class, let's move on to discussing some of the common pitfalls we at Veristat have seen for cell therapy programs. And the first I'd like to touch on is international regulatory variability. Within the US, the regulatory landscape is fairly consistent. As with all investigational products, an active IND is required, as is IRB approval for your clinical study. In other regions, the landscape is much more uneven. Even where regions have worked to harmonize and align processes, such as the EU, there is still regional variability that is persistent. For example, for cell therapy products, initial EU clinical trial approval timelines are 90 days. But for Italy, ministerial decree dictates that the Italian authorities can add a further 180 days if they wish to involve specialists to assess the trial, resulting in much lengthier approval timelines for truly innovative products. Consequently, it is vitally important to work with a team who are experienced in working with many different national authorities and who can help guide you with regard to site selection and timeline management. The next pitfall I'd like to discuss is the assurance of patient safety. If you are listening to this podcast, you are likely aware that the history of this field is littered with examples of programs that have gone awry for one reason or another with regard to patient safety. Some of the pieces to consider as you're discussing this with your team are things like donor screening requirements. This is a requirement in the US to ensure the safety and quality of the starting material for allogeneic products. Testing donors for infectious diseases, particularly latent viral infections. FDA has published a list of infectious agents that need to be considered in such a screening program, and I certainly encourage you to look that up and have a look at it. Other aspects of safety assurance are things that you may be familiar with from trials and other product classes, things like using sentinel dosing groups, data monitoring committees, and study stopping rules. It is important in your first in human study to be quite conservative to ensure you are keeping patient safety at top of mind. 
So some of the clinical monitoring that needs to go into a cell therapy program would be things like monitoring for immunogenicity, looking for any stimulation of anticellular antibodies or for genetically altered cells, antibodies directed against the transgene product. Autoimmune response is also certainly something to be watching for. You'll also want to monitor for persistence of the implanted cells. In many cases, you may want your cell therapy to have a high degree of persistence, but whether desirable or undesirable for your particular application, you will need to develop data showing what the degree of persistence is. You will also need to monitor for migration from the target site, conducting imaging studies to understand that potential risk as your development program proceeds. Moving on to another common pitfall, let's touch on traceability requirements for a moment. In many ways, these requirements are similar to the traceability expectations for other product classes in terms of tracking the amount of product distributed, administered, and destroyed during a trial. In addition, peculiar to autologous cellular therapies, there is an additional requirement for having two unique identifiers to ensure that any given patient receives a product batch that was manufactured using the cells that they donated. Typically, one of these identifiers is the patient's unique subject ID from the study. The second identifier also needs to be unique, but keeping privacy regulations in mind, you'll need to avoid using identifiers that include personally identifiable information, such as birth dates, patient initials, or the like. Logistics is a con critical consideration for cellular therapy programs and another place where we've seen sponsors get hung up. For autologous products, this really revolves around ensuring excellent communication between the clinical sites and the manufacturing facility. Your manufacturing facility will need to know when to expect to receive incoming starting cells and will need a way to control the number of incoming biopsies so that their throughput capacity isn't overwhelmed. On the other end, the clinical sites will need to know when to expect to receive finished product for administration to patients and ensure that those patients understand that those treatment visits must be set up to avoid cancellations. This is even more critical than a typical clinical study uh, to ensure that there is no loss of manufactured cellular material, as cell therapies typically have a very short half-life. So missing a treatment visit could result in a loss of an entire product lot. With allogeneic product, what we've pioneered at Veristat is something we refer to as the central site model. This allows for centralization of the treatment process, which at times can be more complex than in a typical clinical trial. So the traditional distributed site model used in most studies may not be appropriate for a cell therapy study due to the specialized handling and or administration requirements of some cell therapies. So having a central site model where patients go to a single centrally located site to attend, for example, screening and treatment visits, then returning to local centers for follow-up is something that we've pioneered and something that we found works quite well to handle some of the logistics issues associated with allogeneic products. The next consideration I'll touch on for a moment is the need for long-term follow-up. Now, the regulatory requirements for long-term follow-up are not as well-defined for cell therapies as they are for gene therapies, but you certainly will want to be doing some monitoring of long-term follow-up in order to establish duration of efficacy. A distinctive feature of these advanced therapies is that they can indeed provide long-term benefit or even be curative in some cases, so ensuring that you are doing ongoing monitoring for long-term efficacy can be both necessary from a regulatory perspective and particularly valuable in the commercial setting. In addition, of course, with long-term follow-up, you are looking for a safety assessment, uh, looking for persistence of the cellular product, particularly in cases where there is some potential for ectopic growth, migration and outgrowth of the cellular material beyond what was intended with the treatment. Just to wrap up for today, and again, these are intended to be relatively brief discussions, 
And there are certainly plenty of additional details that we could go into and will go into in subsequent episodes of this podcast. It is important to keep in mind that a lack of planning can cause significant delays in your development program. So addressing all of these issues up front in your development plan is critically important to ensure successful progress. By making sure these plans are in place prospectively, it will help you to avoid many of the pitfalls we've discussed. Veristat has extensive experience in this field. We are trailblazers and continue to be very actively involved with this product class. I encourage you to continue listening to future episodes of this podcast, as we will go into some of these issues in greater depth, as well as take on a number of other topics associated with the development of cell and gene therapies. I hope this has been valuable to you. Certainly reach out through the links available on the Veristat website or through cellandgene.expert if you have questions or feedback. We will be back and talking to you again soon. Thank you for listening. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe on your favorite podcast player and look for our other Cell and Gene podcasts at cellandgene.expert.